燃え上がれガンダムwhich is technically the end of the original episode order for uh, the Origin OVAs, but of course they were very popular, so they, they decided, hey, we've got two more episodes we could make, and so they did make two more episodes after this. But th that there is an alternate universe where this didn't sell very well, and this would have been the last of these OVAs. And that would have been disappointing, because yes. in my estimation, I mean, one, because the story would be unfinished, yes. and two, in my estimation, I think this is the weakest of the six episodes. This is easily the weakest of the six episodes, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's bad by any means. I think there's still a bunch of fantastic stuff in it. It just lacks as clear a thematic or narrative spine as the other episodes, and I think that is what hurts it versus, especially because three and five, which I think are the two best episodes, are on either side of it, and mm -hmm. four very much feels like, and it kind of is, a collection of scenes from the manga that didn't fit anywhere else, and so they all sort of go in episode four, whereas everything else, I think all the episodes in this have much more of a spine to them. Um, but I still think there are some individual scenes in this one that are phenomenal, um, including there's there's a scene at the end with Amro and Frau that is one of my favorites. Um, but it is it is definitely the weakest of the six. Yeah, this this is one that I was kind of surprised upon rewatching it because because I was like kind of taken aback how much I do think this is a substantially weaker episode. Like it's not like horrible or anything, um, but it is it's 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 very okay, right? It's a lot of like good scenes that don't really build up together. Um, and I think it is in particular like having read the manga makes this episode like a lot worse in retrospect because of. Like, this is an instance where I think it doesn't find a good way to adapt the material um, because it doesn't have a unique spin on it. Like, like episode three has, like, a very unique take on that section of the story that makes it feel kind of unique. And this is um, a very, you know, sort of pretty straightforward adaptation for the most part of what is volume 12 in the manga, um, but just with lots of sequences cut out in order for it to fit time-wise. Um, or, or some of the sequences are unordered because some of the scenes that they cut end up in episode five in kind of a weird way. Um, but that ends up making the episode feel like it's just a substantially weaker version of what the manga does rather than stuff like episode two or three, which are like interesting, like good adaptations of the manga material that give a different spin on it, or episode one, which is just a really great, solid, straightforward adaptation. This is kind of a messy adaptation 
that kind of suffers from the fact that a lot of the subplots that's paying off, like Amuro and the Tim Ray's stuff, are not fully established through the previous episodes because a lot of that material got cut or reordered because it wasn't relevant in those episodes. Yeah, I mean, in general, I do think the Amuro and Tim Ray stuff and all of that is generally handled better in the manga. Um, it's also, I mean, the manga just has an easier time of, you know, this isn't a discrete set of episodes. It's a big series of chapters mm -hmm. that can can kind of ramble a little bit in the, that it's it's this big historical, like, undertaking of putting all these pieces on the board and so and also that a lot of it is putting pieces in place for future stuff in the manga that will never be in this ova um and this episode isn't as impacted by that but it is something that's there i do think there are some very good scenes in this one like i said um there's some good action in the middle but it is definitely like this is one where i would expect our conversation is going to be shorter than some other episodes because there just isn't mm -hmm. as much substance to this particular one which is okay, because they rebounded very hard in the next one. <laughs> yes, I mean, this This is one that where it just feels like they were kind of stuck with, like, what material they had to adapt and what and the choices they had made in previous episodes made this one very awkward. And, and, and it kind of feels like they almost needed to do, like, like put in a lot of anime original material and have maybe, like, an Amuro-only episode and then a Char episode or something um, and kind of split some of that stuff out just because it doesn't fully meld together but it but it's kind of like what they had to work with for episode four um but it's just mentioned before we go any further just to give an update i have as of last night um i have finished reading mobile suit gundam the origin the manga um, i don't have to worry about spoiling anything yes so there's there's <laughs> there's no there's no spoiling I've, I've read all of it including the kind of like what they call the the special volume uh volume 25 at the very end um so i've read the the, yeah. the the entirety of Mobile Suit Gundam the origin the manga so there's there's the and 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 so there's no worry about spoiling anything but also the this section of uh the, that is being adapted is I read like a week ago I read shortly after our last <laughs> recording um which was us doing because we did two and three recorded those episodes basically at the same time so it's yeah so it's only been like a week since the last time uh, I read any of this stuff because I read that like the night afterwards do you still think it's a good manga yes yes it's a good manga it's like so there's definitely good. i'm very excited to talk about it because there's there there is some stuff that i i pretty uh, like significantly prefer the anime take on some things um but there's some stuff that i prefer the manga take on it like i think it's an interesting what, what it does and kind of like the home stretch is like it, it it reflects in interesting ways on stuff that the anime and like the movie does i agree and i, I just there's some there's some phenomenal stuff there down the home stretch, and I I really really love everything around basically Abaku at the end. But we will talk about that in the seventh episode of this little mini series when we just talk about the manga. But yes, um, now you now you fully do see some of what I've been talking about of like things that are in the the origin like flashback that are clearly there because he's paying off on them in the mm -hmm. like future material. So yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, anyway. Um, let's jump into this one, Sean. Where do you want to uh, start? This is also, I should say, I guess, if we're going to start, this is where they start having the ridiculously long um, <laughs> recaps in this series. Yes, because it's like an eight-minute recap because they are recapping everything that has happened through the previous episode. So they basically are just stacking recaps on top of recaps. It's a chain recap because literally yeah. the episode four recap, which is eight minutes, is the episode two and three recaps just played verbatim with a new recap recapping episode three 
onto this. I still, I watched it in full because we're reviewing it and everything. And I do think they're, they're so well put together, especially with the Akio Otsuka narration that they're mm-hmm. very entertaining. Um, I am glad though with episode five, they kind of re it's still long, but they reorder how they do it. So it's a little more dynamic. Um, but I do think it's funny. I mean, the reason is that obviously these came out months apart and they also came out in theaters and stuff where you might be bringing yeah. people who didn't see like every single one of them. So it makes sense to do the big long recaps, but I do think they're kind of funny. Yeah, like like it may it, I have a thought of you know because we don't really do recap things on TV shows almost at all anymore, but it used to be like pretty standard practice on a serialized show. You know, yes. so you'd have like Lost or or Twenty Four and stuff like that would do their like previously ons, and it would have been hilarious if those shows had done this and they just stacked up the previously <laughs> on every single time. So by the end, you get of like a twenty four long episode episode long season. Um, you would have just this like 30 minute recap and then one minute of like TV show or something right at the end of it. It would be very funny. Um, but where do you want to start with this episode, Sean? Um, I guess let's kind of take it in order because basically what the episode is, is it's, it's three pretty um, disconnected stories um, kind of put together where you have, you've got the Lala Soon story, then you've got the uh, Professor Manofsky story, and then you have the Ramba, or the, not Ramba, the Amaro story at the end, um, and it's, so it's kind of, which is basically how that um, section of the manga is written as well, like it is those three stories in that volume, but one thing that this uh, OVA does is it has a little kind of, kind of like um, a couple of them have had a bit of like a cold opening of covering some material that was at the very end of the previous volume of the manga that the majority of which episode three covered but episode three ends right at the end of the the rebellion um but that volume of manga then has some stuff about like the fallout of that and so that's how this episode opens up so i guess let's cover that and then i guess we could just like hit the subsequent stories down the line because it opens with this big parade for the dawn rebellion cadets especially garma I love that scene because Garma is clearly loving it. He's like, this is so cool. Everyone yes. loves me. Char has that perfect Char bemused look on his face. And they do a very dramatic zoom into there's a car behind them holding pictures of all the dead. And they do a big zoom in on Lino, is who's the one that Char killed. And that made me laugh. It's very funny. Yes, yeah. It's a very happy parade for some kids that Char very much got killed and one that he very directly got (laughs) killed. killed. Yes, exactly. Um, There's this interesting scene where you have the feds and the Xeon forces um, at a table like debating like, you have to hand someone over for this horrible thing you did. And, of course, everyone in the room is like, well, we're not handing you over Garma Zabi, you idiots. And then Degwin walks in. And I like this scene because there's this interesting moment where when Degwin walks in, everyone, including even the Fed people, even General Revel, all stand to attention. And you do see in that moment this, and it, that's a theme that continues in the, the original TV show, which is that Degwin commands a certain degree of respect among the Fed people that Girin and all the others absolutely do not. And I think that's an interesting little thing you see here. Yeah, because he is because he is both like literally the the actual leader of the country, right? Um, so he is he is the top authority, um, but also obviously like he there's some history there that that you know he has been around. Whereas like Giran is this like dumb little upstart dictator boy um, that wants to kill everybody, um, and there's like Degwinzabi is like a highly accomplished like politician. You know, right. so yeah, he, he 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 comes from like an older world that the Federation people recognize and respect. 
um, that you're right that like someone like Giran certainly doesn't command. I think there's an interesting character dynamic they could explore here that they they don't, and that's fine. But certainly with our like current political climate in the states, I think is very interesting, which is that Degwin, whenever he walks into a room, is always saying he wants peace. He doesn't want fighting. He like makes a demand. He's like, you guys should get rid of your troops here. But he says like, hey, nobody here wants war. And I don't know how much the Fed people believe him, but I do always get the sense that the Feds never quite catch on to who's the actual power there. That Degwin can say this over and over again, but he has completely lost the thread on like his actual base in Zeon that Girin commands. Um, you know, I've always had a sense that, like, I think Degwin and Revel must have a pre-existing, like, professional relationship because they're mm -hmm. able to talk to each other. And I do think there's something to be said there about, like, the, there's the leader who's, the nominal leader who's saying, of course there's not going to be war. And then there's all these people trying to start a war. And it seems like the people who should be stopping them from starting that war are not focusing on the right group of power in Zeon. Yeah, that they're kind of assuming that it's working by, like, the traditional channels of, like, power and, and politicking. And I think there's, like, an assumption that, of course, nobody would actually want to go to war. Of course, Zeon wouldn't actually want to go to war because there's really no reasonable way by which they could win a war with the Federation because they're completely outclassed in terms of, like, funding and resources and, and manpower. Um, and so, yeah, like, everyone is, I think, kind of assuming that it's never actually going to come to that until people like Girin who are like chomping at the bits for this to have for the war to happen because it's their opportunity to like gain huge amounts of power and influence in their society and for him to like you know ascend to the throne it's like really the only reasonable way he has to get the kind of power he wants in the world those people are going to push that war through regardless of what like the old world politicking is trying to do exactly there's, there's a scene after this where well, you have a little Zabi family meeting where everyone's mad at Dozel because it was his job to protect Garma. And then Garma comes in with that big dumb smile on his face. He's holding the big bouquet of flowers he was given and everyone's, you know, immediately like doesn't want to have this fight in front of Garma. But what follows is one of my absolute favorite scenes in the origin. I think it's one of the best scenes in the manga as well where you have Degwin bring Garma into his room and you see fully what relationship these two have which is that Garma is kind of Degwin's only actual child he has a father-son relationship with right he has so kind of lost the thread with his other kids I think Degwin fucking hates Giran and Kaecilia I just oh, have yeah. to imagine he fucking hates those kids he says to Garma of all my children only you have a gentle disposition and then they have this thing where Degwin is in his like big kind of throne chair and Garma kneels down next to him and puts his and Degwin puts his hand on Garma's face and says, "Is my hand cold?" And Garma says, "No, it's warm. It's very warm." And he says, "So is your cheek. Stay like this a while, Garma." And then he has this line where he says, "I've done a terrible thing. It's not right to have children when you've grown old." I adore, adore, adore that scene in terms of it's something that I think the origin is uniquely good at among prequels, which is it gives you all the like plot prequel stuff that you maybe want from a story like this. But I think it's even better at doing moments like that where it's bits of character building and psychology mm -hmm. that really makes this a prequel worth telling. And I think that moment of seeing Degwin's... He knows he's lost the plot and he's very sad about it. And his only real solace is this one kid who hasn't been ruined by this fucking war. And of course that's what's going to... Garma's death is what's going to basically light the fuse that's going to burn the entire Zabi family to the ground in a couple months here, you know? 
Yeah, and I think just like that, the whole dynamic of that scene, and I'm with you that it's it's one of the most interesting and like the best, just like little beats, just little moments in the origin, um, is is the way that it, you know, complicates Degwin's relationship in the sense of that he is both a father to Garma, but he's also a grandfather because of like the huge disparity in age, um, and and there's something about that dynamic that I think is like unique and and very compelling that that it, it as you say it is like the only kind of relationship he has with his children that feels like it's sort of healthy or normal and it's not this like thing where the kids are you know blood mad fucking crazy soldier people trying to um you know burn down the federation in a, in a crazy bid for power or dozel who's not really trying to do that in a crazy bid for power but he gets sort of like roped into that whole mindset over the course of um the kind of these events as the war starts kicking up um but so like garma is like the one normal person that kind of he can have like a, a normal kind of relationship with but also it is this kind of unnatural relationship because of how old he was when he had garma and couldn't have a normal father-son relationship or a typical father-son relationship because he's a grandfather's age not an actual father's age exactly i mean and you know this is a dynamic that obviously clearly exists and motivates a ton of things in the original show it's what leads to the moment of you know this is when degwin dropped his scepter that whole yeah. brilliant piece of narration and all of that um which they recreate in the... I love how they do that in the manga, by the way. That whole panel is fucking mm -hmm. phenomenal. Anyway, not the point, but it's great. Um, but I do think, like, the way they expand on it here and just this moment of, like, physical tenderness, which I think is something Yasuhiko is very good at throughout the manga. Um, and I just think that the writing there is also very beautiful. Um, and having that, like, Degwin... Degwin is a shitty human being who has done shitty things and does not use the power he has to, like, rein in this horrible thing that's going to happen. But there's also a humanity there that is what makes him interesting. Um, and again, I don't think any of... I don't think the death of literally any of his other kids would lead him to drop the scepter, because that's, like, basically at this point, the only thing that is precious to him in this whole world is this one kid he hasn't fucking ruined. And I think that's kind of beautiful. Yeah, and it's in and it's like the dynamic of the zombie family, right? Is that you lose Garma, who is the most grounded, gentle, nice one of them, and then you lose Dozel, who is not, you know, he's not as nice as Garma, and and Dozel does awful things, but he has like a sense of like a code that he lives by and a soldierly ethic that he lives by. Um, that then Giran and Cassilia, they've got nothing, right? They have nothing holding them back. They have no moral qualms. There's not a, like, single shred of, like, gentle disposition in their entire fucking bodies. Um, and, and that kind of slowly, all the good pieces that were there, that used to be there amongst the Zeon and the Zabis, get shaved off as the war becomes more and more severe. And you, and that's the dynamic of the original show. And, and that's one of the things that makes this kind of little beat in a prequel very compelling is that it feels like it is not a scene you would expect, right? Like, I wouldn't imagine if anybody else made a prequel, they would have put in a scene quite like this with Degwin. Um, but it, it fits so perfectly into the dynamic that we already know and the character psychology we've already seen of the character in the original story. And it's just such a, like, kind of well-observed and very interesting moment to put in here. Yeah, absolutely. Um... The, this, it is such an amazing thing that, that, you know, the original Gundam contains so many multitudes of great things in it. But I do think it's always amazing when you go back and, like, the Zobbies 
are pretty far down the call sheet if you go by characters and like their prominence on the show. But mm-hmm. they're so fascinating that I think so much of the best stuff in the origin is about them. And it is like, you know, we've made the joke before about this kind of feeling like HBO's, you know, Gundam with like the big hour long episodes and stuff. Some of this also feels like Succession, the current HBO show about a terrible rich family of fucking vipers fighting each other. Like you could do that show about the zombies and it would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, it is that kind of classic, you know, it's 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 the story of like the aristocracy or the nobility that we see all throughout history of that sort of proximity to such extreme power and authority um it it, yeah. it, it reveals <laughs> the nature of a lot of people um and you know Giran and Cassilia their natures are not particularly pleasant no they are not uh one other scene that is uh interesting to know here before we get into all the stuff with uh back on earth with Shar and Lala is that we do have the scene where Dozel uh proposes very awkwardly to Zena. Yes which I think is a wonderful little scene. There's a great little piece of animation here where before Zena walks in, Dozel is like trying to flatten his hair and he does it and then he takes his hands off and it all goes back up and I just yep. love that little piece of animation. And then that whole scene, I think the performance is phenomenal. I love the lines here and I love that it all ends with him. His proposal is, will you bear the children of Dozel Zabi? Uh, yep. And Zena is very overwhelmed by this. It's very funny. Yes, it's a good, weird little moment um yeah that that he's you know Dozel's very fixated on continuing the zombie line you know he's he's the only he's the he is the only zombie who fucks in in canonical Gundam <laughs> I know that Guren fucks in the novels but like in canonical Gundam Dozel he is the one who fucks Dozel's the one who fucks Garma you know maybe if he and Char had enough time together but you know yeah we don't know. You know, if if Garma hadn't been trapped in the web of Shar, he might have found like another actual relationship. But that's unfortunately, true. <laughs> unfortunately, no, he was that's not what happened. Very much in the web of Shar, which sounds like the name for like a fucking Shar spinoff that they should make. Yeah, or it's you know it's there it's a children's novel. It's not Charlotte's Web. It's Shar's Web. That would be so dark. What would he make in the fucking web? Would he just tell the pig to kill himself? You know, he he writes a big screed about how it's like, you know, that the future belongs to new types, not to the old types. Um, And he's a new type spider. You know, that's how he's able to talk to pigs and shit. I think the pig would be very confused. Yes. Anyway, uh, Sean, do you want to talk about the stretch of the episode in Manaus, where we meet Lala soon? Yes. So so we we, ha- we see Char meets Dozel, right? And that's where he gets his sort of basically like a demotion and and he's sort of put into the reserves more or less so he becomes a private um and he takes a vacation let's say and decides to go to earth there's an interesting kind of dynamic to this that is something that in the manga um is important that obviously for the purposes of the anime is is somewhat irrelevant but he goes and he works on a construction site for Jaburo because the federation is beginning to build the Jaburo base in the manga that's an important detail because they make it so that Char is the person who is able to get intel on where Jaburo is in order to do the attack on Jaburo in the manga. And that happens before this flashback takes place. But that is kind of filling in one of those gaps about how did Char know about any of this stuff is that he was one of the people involved in the original construction. I feel like the implication is that that is specifically why he is on in, in this team is that he is like there gathering intel so he can leverage it eventually um later on when he returns back to to zeon um but that is why he is at this this jabro construction facility on earth i feel like it's two things it's um 
And I think the implication they give in the anime leans towards the he's getting experience playing with a mobile worker. Yes, um, that's there, there, there as well, yeah. That's there. Um, but yeah, in the manga, there's this whole bigger thing that if you were reading the manga, you would have already seen this set of scenes that I really love because in the manga, this involves a great full-page panel of Char on like a fucking like boat going down like this the river in like South America um, to go meet with the natives because that's how he has all this intel on Jaburo. I actually like that little subplot in the manga a lot. Um, and so this is kind of how he gets all of that intel. Um, but yeah, this is the, the larger context of that obviously is not in the OVA. Yeah. And then this is the sequence where, you know, basically the point of this story is to show Char and Lala meeting. And I will say that for me personally, I think this is like the weakest segment of the origin, both in probably the manga and the anime where I, I don't really think that this is a particularly interesting idea for telling a story about Char and Lala meeting. Like, I feel like this sequence exists primarily because it has to, because if you're doing a flashback, it would be bizarre not to show Char and Lala meeting, because particularly for the manga, she is going to show up later when they get to side six. So right. it's like, if the character, you would just be like, what the fuck? We had a whole, like, six volumes of this manga showing Char's life from eight to the beginning of the one-year war. How did we miss him meeting like apparently the love of his life or whatever. Um, but it doesn't feel to me like Yoshikazu Yasuhiko actually has like a really great idea for a story to tell about the meeting the way he did with Shar and Garma. And so you get this like cool, like it's a fun little action beat is kind of most of what this sequence is with a little bit of character stuff. But I, I, I was, I remember this being the thing that when I watched the origin OVAs originally, I was kind of disappointed by. And I had always assumed that there was more in the manga that had been cut. And no, this is like a really kind of full adaptation of this section in the manga, this chapter. Um, and that actually this OVA adds in one little scene at the very end that's not in the manga where Lala gets another little beat in the prequel stuff. Um, but other than this one chapter, she never shows up again in the prequel stuff. And, it, and this section just has always felt very kind of like slight and incomplete to me for something that feels like it should be a lot more important. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with that. I think there's... I like what it is. I like this scene a lot. I think there's good stuff in it. But I agree it feels a little slight. It feels incomplete. Because one of the weird jump, I don't mind that the origin in the manga or the OVA takes these big jumps in time because it's got a lot of fucking ground to cover, yeah. right? So, like, you know, we do jump basically for Char from this to him back in service in his red mobile suit. Um, and I don't, like, I don't need the moment where Char tells someone to paint his mobile suit red. I feel like the end of episode three established he's going to do stuff with red fine, you know? Um, but that is, like, the kind of thing they skip. And I feel like with the Lala stuff, the meeting is one thing. And I think this is fine as a version of their meeting. It's not the most interesting thing you could do, but it's fine. What I want is the scene after. I want him, yeah. like... Where do they go? And, like, this is where there is actual stuff in the novel, um, the original Tomino novels, that you could pull in. Because I think one of the most surprising omissions from the origin is that there's nothing about the Flanagan Institute. Um, yeah. That is, that is nominally there in the original anime. It's a background thing you hear about. It's a very big part of the Tomino novels where he does a whole big section at the Flanagan Institute and you have multiple other new types after Lala that I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of that material was in the like aborted episodes of OG Gundam. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is worked into the novelization. 
Um, and there's a whole thing I feel like you could have done there about, and I feel like it's a missing piece that in this episode I really feel missing, is I feel like there needs to be another stretch, like as long as the Lala meeting, that is about Char. Now Char has like felt and sensed the existence of a new type. Who is researching that? How does he find the Flanagan Institute? What does he do to make sure Lala is safe? Because that's a whole side of it that they just never go into in the origin. And it's very important in both the manga version of the story that goes forward and in the original anime that Char has this pre-existing relationship with Lala and other new types and this whole institute that's studying them to the degree that he has like nominal control and influence over it. And like, again, I don't need every little thing prequelized, but that's a weird one not to prequelize, right? Yeah, because it is, I would be very curious to talk to someone who read the manga and that was their only version of the story that they had encountered. Because I would just be very curious how you would like understand some of the Lala Soon stuff. Because you have this one scene that is like totally disconnected from everything else in the prequel stuff. And this is in the manga, this is the first time you see the Lala Soon character. So this is the first time she shows up. So if you didn't know anything about, if you hadn't seen the TV show or the movies or you know nothing about Gundam, this is how you meet her character. She's only in that one chapter. Char never talks about her again until Amuro runs into her on side six in what is like a very close adaptation of how they first meet in her first appearance in the TV show slash also the movies. Um, and so there's this weird like sort of, it feels like this scene exists purely for people who already know who Lala Soon is and why she's important. Because if you don't, know that like what this character's relationship to Shara is going to be it feels like it's hard to get the sense of why this would exist in the first place when you were reading it because it doesn't build up to anything and the character just mysteriously disappears from the flashback sequence after this point um and it's it's just one of those things where it feels like there's this weird gap where Shara is on earth he has this like little tiny adventure where he meets this girl that has like interesting powers that seem similar to some of the new type shit that's starting to happen in the main story. Um, and then he says, let's go into space. And then there's just a cut to you then go do some of the Minoski professor stuff. And then you see Char and Char has just become one of the five Zaku pilots that Zeon has that are like piloting prototype Zaku's and Zaku 1's. In the when like the first full deployment of mobile suits in in like sort of the pre-war conflicts uh and it feels like there's just a massive gap there that is bizarre where there are things that are set up like the picture that lala has of her family that is damaged and shards like oh we can scan it and print out a new copy that feels like a setup for a scene you would have like that would probably be the last moment of them together late in like a further story where he gives her like that picture and, and that like sort of fully like consummates the bond between those characters setting up their relationship in the, the like present day storyline of Mobile Suit Gundam. But it's just this weird sort of like half done story just sort of shoved in here that I can only like blame episode four so much for it because it is like this is exactly what it is in the manga. Right. And I think there's... <sighs> It's sort of like you have to think about, this is where I think the, the OVA, it being a standalone, makes some of these problems different, right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. in the manga, I, can, I, I understand the bind I would imagine Yosh, uh, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko thought he was in, 
which is that in the manga, this is where you would meet Lala because the flashback happens before her entry into the story. And I imagine his thought process must have been, you don't want to do too much with her here mm-hmm. because then you would kind of spoil her actual introduction because the actual breadth of her stuff in the story, he doesn't play with that much. Some of it's moved around a little bit, but it's a fairly close adaptation of all her yeah. stuff in the in the anime mm-hmm. because that stuff is perfect, right? Like there's yeah. nothing to improve there. So you can't do too much with her you, and you want to leave some mystery because if you went in the middle of the manga and did a big explication where they go to the Flanagan Institute and have a big thing about new types and all of this stuff before Amuro in the present day has learned about it, I do think that would be a narrative misstep for the manga, right? Yeah. And so that is the difficulty with, and I think that's the only place where the flashback runs into that difficulty of where does it land in the story? But for the OVA... The OVA is a standalone thing, and you can generally expect that people watching it have seen the original Gundam. It very much plays like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think the better version of Episode 4 probably would be the the last chunk of stuff with Amuro in this episode I actually do really like, but I would take it out. I don't think it belongs in this episode. I'd give it its own episode. Yes. Because there's enough Amuro material to be its own episode that they just sort of sprinkle across Episodes 3, 4, and 5 of the origin that I think doesn't work as nearly as well as it does in the manga i i agree 100 with that and like yeah so let's say budget is no object and they were able to make seven mm-hmm. episodes one of them would be the amuro episode and then i think this one would be same beginning same thing in manaus and all that however you want to do that but i think the middle episode here would be something to take us from point a to point c where a is char meeting lala and c is the episode on the moon which i like all of that stuff too but the stuff in the middle, I think there needs to be something there that is either about where Lala, where Shar takes Lala in space, what kind of where they leave their relationship off when he is called back into service, and like just one fun like Top Gun esque scene where he is called back and Dozel's like, "Well, you wanted to be a mobile suit pilot. Let's see what you got, kid." And Shar gets in one and has the time of his life, and then they're like, "Shit, this guy should be in Azaku." Do you know what I mean? I feel like that would be the right version of Episode Four. Yeah, I agree. Because one thing there I'm curious about, Jonathan, like, what do you interpret the reason of, like, how does Char go from being a sort of dishonored pilot who is on Earth because he's basically been kicked out of the military, but just, like, not officially, to being one of the only mobile suit pilots um, in the entirety of Xeon? Like, how does that jump happen? Like, what does he do? What's, what reason do you interpret there? It's what's in my head, which is that, and again, I think this wouldn't be hard to dramatize. We know Dozel has a really good eye, because we saw it with the Ron Baral stuff, for people in, in the military, what they want and what they're good at, and he's good at going and recruiting them. And I think Shar has the line where he says to Dozel, if you call me back, I want to be a mobile suit pilot. Dozel was the head of that school. He knows full well this kid is fucking brilliant. And I think when it comes time to, we need another ace up our sleeve, I think he's like, Let's see what that shark kid is up to. And I think they put him in a suit and test him and that's what happens. And that's why I feel like it's weird that scene doesn't exist because it's so easy to imagine the version of that scene. It would be in character for everyone, to me. Yeah, it's interesting because the way I read it, and I, and I don't think that the... Because the, it's not doing anything to imply this reading at all. This is me just having done like a lot of work for the story to be like, well, if I were doing this, this is how I would do it with the pieces you have. Is that like... 
when I read it in the manga, this is because I know how important Lala is and the Flanagan Institute already and all that is information already knew. I was like, oh, is the way that he ends up back in that position is he uses Lala as like a bargaining chip because here's your new type magic soldier lady. Oh, I'll give okay. her to the Flanagan Institute and use that as political leverage to then put me in the position I want to be in. Again, there is nothing that implies that at all in the manga there's no work that does that there's nothing that says anything about that like the 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 big gap between him saying to lala let's go into space and then him being a mobile suit pilot is just as big in the manga as it is in this episode and the only way you'd even be able to make any of those connections is just by taking pre-existing knowledge you have from the original versions of the story and applying it here but that would be i think an interesting thing that would be more char-esque that like is kind of the version that I would do of it. And, and I would, it, it's a thing that like, I think it's just one of the weaknesses of, of the manga as well, where it just feels like there's this weird gap that it like, there's such an interesting little like story or thing to tell there, like an interesting beat for Char to do some Char shit to get into that mobile suit. And that beat just doesn't exist. I agree. That's how I would do it. I think because the version that I was just telling in my head is the easy version of that story. I think it would work. I would buy it. But I think what you proposed is the more interesting version of that story because I think there would be a real character dynamic there because you'd have to figure out how to walk that line where Char isn't just like selling Lala out because I don't think he would do that. But he is doing something to leverage power, which he always is doing, right? Yeah. And, um, and that, like, I think, like, he still has that, you know, Char uses people because he does use Lala, right? Yes, he uses he her as a weapon. So it feels like it would it would fit very naturally. That's just like it's one of those areas where it's surprising that I think the story missteps here because it so rarely or almost never really does have these kinds of awkward missteps, even though it is, you know, it's tackling really big, like complicated material that is spanning a huge amount of time in this fictional universe that's having to tie into things from a story that Yoshikazu Yasuhiko didn't have full control over. So he's having to play within like a certain bounds of what like the original story was. So it's like, it's fair that there would be some missteps, but there are, since there almost are never any, the fact that this section just feels so messy, it stands out a lot. Right. Cause I think like, you know, we'll have the full conversation about the manga later, but it is amazing. It's this 10 year project and, you know, there might be some things that you or I prefer in the anime or whatever, but I think it's very rarely anything there where I go, that's a misstep, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is the one where I agree. I think that gap feels like an actual misstep, which, hey, wrote this really fucking cool virtuosic manga for 10 years, and that's kind of it. That's kind of cool. <laughs> but, yeah, it is an issue. And I just think the, the anime needed to take a more active hand in adapting it because, yeah. you know, whether or not it's there in the source material, you don't have to just do the source material, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and they've shown that in episode three in particular, where they, they added in really significant elements and changed things in order to make that fit better. Yeah. And it feels like that would have been the thing to do here. But let's talk like a little bit more of the specifics of what does happen, because we've kind of like talked the kind of big picture of how this fits in narratively. Um, but there are some pretty cool moments here um, in this uh, sequence. Uh, and one thing I do want to shout out, um, even though it... It sort of ties into some disappointment because she doesn't get to do a lot, but they do do, if you have to recast Lala soon, you, they got the best possible person to do it uh, because they hired uh, Hayami Saudi to play Lala soon, who is, of course, she's Ayaka in Genshin Impact. She's Shinobu in Kimetsu no Yaiba. 
um, she, I forget the character's name, but she's Flit's um, sort of new type-ish love uh, interest from uh, the first part of Gundam Age. I believe um, so she's the new character on One Piece who's probably going to be the mm-hmm. next member of the crew, Yamato. So, yeah. Yeah, so she like very prominent uh, voice actress. Um, uh, I mean, she, she, her career was already really big um, it, by this point that this was happening in like 2015, 2016. Um, but just really, really good casting. It is exactly... It is, it is exactly the casting that I would do. Um, again, she doesn't have much dialogue, but what is there is good. Like, she has a very similar quality to her voice as the um, original actress did, um, but but obviously, like, sounding, like, age-appropriate because this is the younger version of Lala Soon. She's supposed to... I mean, she's probably, like, 14 or 15 years old right at this point. Yeah. Um, and, it's a and... good recasting. I am a little surprised they didn't just have Keiko Han do it, who is the original voice, because... She was doing, like, she does Lala mm-hmm. in her line in Unicorn just a couple years earlier. Um, she's still active. Her daughter is Megumi Han, who plays Sela yes. in this show. Um, I guess the, the, is the is the logic just purely to make her sound younger, I guess? Probably. I mean, this is where, because this is something that we, we also ran into with the Zeta Gundam movies. Movies, is that yeah. there's There's a much bigger tendency to recast female actresses for sexist reasons of, yes, of making her... Or younger um and like i think there's just this sort of like sexist assumption that at like older actresses can't play much younger than their actual age whereas you know we have todu furia play a like 12 year old amuro and and it's fu- like you know like it's fun because it's todu furia but it's also like i mean it's not as if he like totally nails or pulls off a 12 year old boy <laughs> voice in any way that's just purely because it's like it's amuro you wouldn't want to recast him but I'm with you. Like, like nor in an ideal world where you don't have those kinds of um, that kind of like sexist behavior going on in how you kind of cast in these assumptions made for female characters, that that I would just keep the actress because she could still do it. But if it, if you're it, going it, to recast the character, Heidi Saudi is is the best actress to get. Oh, 100 percent. And like, I totally understand that. And if you, and I guess my my reasoning is like, if this were a fuller, if they did more with Lala, I would actually understand the recast more. Mm-hmm. It's when you're doing like ten lines with her, like yeah, get Keiko. Like that's just a weird one to me. I do think it is, and we've talked about it before, and it is unfortunate. It is amazing to me that this can be an industry that has someone like Masako Nozawa pushing 90, still doing like young Gohan whenever she's called to, and you can still have people think, eh, old women can't do young people voices. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know? It's such a weird assumption. Yeah. It, yeah, it's... it's, it's it, it fucking sucks. Um, because, because it is that thing of where you just... Because you would never even imagine them doing that with Amuro or Char, right? There's no... no even if like again like those characters sound dramatically older like you know Ginga Banjo in, as Giran Zabi does not sound like he's a 20 year old or like 30 however old Giren's no he does be, not like, in his mid 20s to like early 30s like the character sounds substantially older than he's supposed to be because there's only so much an actor of age could do to disguise their voice but like the audience's suspension of disbelief is more than significant enough to make up for that fact because the performance is so good right it's also it's performance it's yeah. none of these people are in space like you know there's lots of reasons it can work but yes um but i am with you though that sorry Jaime, if if you were going to recast it she's perfect for it and she is very good in this like to the degree where i didn't peg it as a recast right away like it's mm-hmm. especially when i first watched it she does a very good reinterpretation and also you know imitation of that original performance which is iconic it's like you can yeah. just hear keiko hans lala in in your head if you've seen 
enough Gundam with her in it. Um, but yeah, um, it is a it is a it's a good piece of casting. Um, and I do like a lot of the stuff in this section. I like the whole thing at the casino where she's got the man she's helping win, and what she's doing is she's tracing the number on his back mm-hmm. to guess the ball. Um, I also think the other thing about Lala in this episode that I wanted to mention is I think her animation is phenomenal. They yeah. do, they frequently do this in this show, but there's some that are even better than others. They capture her design, not just from first Gundam, but also how Yasuhiko specifically draws her in the manga really, really well. I think her and Sela in the origin OVA might be the two they do the best job with. It's like really mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah, I, yeah, I would hundred percent agree that that it's it, because there's like a there's a flowy quality to her character design, right? Of of her like dress and yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's very important for the kind of almost ethereal quality of the character and the char- very kind of airy or breathy quality that the character has. Um, that that when you've got especially like the additional sort of like headroom of this sort of OVA slash movie production that they really take advantage of. Um, because yeah, I agree that the the character animation on Lala Soon is really exceptional in this episode. Yeah, it it feels like, and it probably this is true. Whoever got the key animation job for her was like, I'm doing Lala Soon. Let's do this 100. percent You know, um, and that's to be fair, that's kind of everything in the origin. But there's just some that are just even on another level. And I actually think this whole part in South America is gorgeous. The background animation mm-hmm. in this stretch is off the fucking charts good. Um, there's a and and then of course the big action sequence that happens where Char fights the degenerate gamblers to get Lala back is a tremendously animated little action beat that does this really beautiful very 70s ass like flash frame thing where when Char Mm -hmm. gets the new type flash it goes into like a series of still images when the the like broom he's got gets cut or the shovel gets cut and then he stabs the guy it is it's a very striking action sequence in the manga I was just rereading it the other night um and I think in the in the anime it's it's phenomenally well done yeah, it's a really well-designed action beat. It's, like, surprisingly graphic, which is true of the manga version as yes. well. It's like, oh, God, that's very bloody. I will Is this say, the only time we've seen Shar uh, yeah. kill someone with his bare hands? Like, usually he's doing it mm. with a gun or a mobile suit or a tractor, as he does in the subsequent scene. We very rarely see him, like, take out something and, you know, he fights Char... He, well, no, in episode two, he stabs the knight with the, the sword. Yes, We just don't that's true, see yeah. it. Yeah. He did that there. And then he's he's definitely, like, shot some people with guns, like in Zeta yes. Gundam, when he's escaping the uh, uh, Haman Karn ship and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, it's very rare to see him just straight up murder a man, you know, with the, and to feel it with his own two hands. Yes, um, which he probably loves, let's be honest. Yeah. There, there is something here that I do think that some of, like, the design of the two, uh, like, sort of the gamblers that, that um, sort of are using Lala is, like, a bit racist to me. Yeah, like, I have a note there's, about there's, it here. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, like, an uncomfortable, particularly the assassin dude is the one that feels really bad of where you've got this guy who's, like, face is half beard and he's wearing, like, basically, like, Aladdin's fucking outfit and then he's using a chakram, which is a traditional indian weapon which is that like you know circle that is bladed on the outer edge and blunt on the inner edge and you like spin it on your finger and fling it at people um and it just feels like it would be the equivalent of in like an american thing of just having a random ninja man there that's killing people with shurikens in a um 
you know, in a thing that is set like hundreds of years in our future where we have like right. colonized space and we have giant robots and there are no other characters that are drawn or depicted in this very characteristic way that has this very like old Disney-y kind of like this is a racist character because of like how much you're just using the character's race and sort of country of origin to like dominate how they are physically depicted so completely through stereotypical elements um and it's just it's the only thing that is like this in the entire manga slash the anime for origin like you don't really have any other characters that you know you don't have things that can often exist in other manga which are or in anime which are like very racist kind of like stereotypical depictions of chinese people and stuff like that 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 you sometimes see it doesn't have that problem anywhere else but there's this one like weird chakram assassin indian man who's mostly a beard and aladdin with a, like an aladdin vest of a well, dude with a turban and they show up and it's like what the fuck it's an interesting thing in the manga you know the manga and this is one of the things i unambiguously adore about it is that yasuhiko has a very like almost finicky obsessive like quality of trying to place everything on earth geographically and mm -hmm. it's something that I think is really cool because when the white base is going around, they're going to real places and sometimes he's imagining how they would be in this future racked by climate change and a colony drop and all of that stuff. You know, the journey they take makes full geographic sense. I love all of that stuff. I live for it. And I do think, like, you can tell, and this bears out in Yasuhiko's other work too, right? He has a general curiosity about the world and other places and cultures that he likes to draw in his work and i feel like this is one where that curiosity comes to a like i would imagine he didn't think he was doing something stereotypical but it comes out as like that's the like thing he pulls off the shelf and it is an unfortunate like weird cultural association that just comes off as like weird shorthand in a way that like lala soon herself has never quite bothered me mm -hmm. you know because yeah. Like, because that's another thing he does here is Lala is explicitly Indian in this version of the story. Her family is in Mumbai. Like, they name it out loud, right? Um, and I think all of that is great. I've always thought, you know, the reason she has um, the, the dot on her head, you know, so much connects to the whole third eye idea and a lot of the new type stuff. There's a lot of reasons to do that. Um, but she is also not reduced to that as a cultural stereotype, you know? Um and yeah, this she's is one not just... like anachronistic in the way no. that these two dudes are just like feel like they came out of a completely different story. Like Lala soon yeah. fits into the world of Gundam, whereas like these guys came out of, of like Aladdin three on VHS or something and showed up. Um, yes, it was really weird. And, I, and this is like a slightly more pedantic point that is not as significant, but it is something that slightly bothers me, which is that Chakram aren't boomerangs. The dude he throws it and it like <laughs> magically comes back. It's like it's just a circle. It's not a fucking boomerang. There's no way to make it come back to you. Just you right. just fucking throw that thing and it just goes. It's you know, um, yeah. it's like you know, it's like like the way the action scene is designed. Otherwise, like if it wasn't a racist caricature and it was like an edged boomerang or something. Um, like all that stuff would be like totally perfect. It would be a very cool scene, um, and and how that all works and and Lala Soon's new type powers working into it. All that stuff is cool. It's just tarnished by this weird other element that's in the sequence that feels like is very unfortunate and shouldn't be there. Yes, no, I completely agree about that. It's a it's a really really good action beat, but it just. It, there is that one little like you're just like yeah some of these racial implications are not great 
Um, and it feels a little unfortunate um, because otherwise I do think like it's a it's a cool. I, I always like how the world feels fleshed out in the background in the origin manga and OVA. And this is one of those where like it feels like Char is in a real living, breathing place on Earth with a logic behind it. Um, and the stereotyping, you know, pulls away from that. It doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I do want to say during this stretch, Char has a couple of key lines that I think are fucking phenomenal. And I had to like write them down in Japanese because you can't really understand Shard's dialogue and why it's good unless you look at it in Japanese. Mm-hmm. One is that when he is at work and he's like chatting with the other guys and and they're all talking about like the Zeons and the war and everything, he has this line that they translate as "those Zeons really are bastards." But it's even better in Japanese where he goes, "Honto saite desu yo, Zion wa." Fucking, that's a great charism. <laughs> yeah, it, it is particularly. It's like it's Char trying to talk like he's a normal guy. Yes. is what I love about it. That he's got like this sort of like sleeveless, kind of like black like tank top um on, and he's got the fucking hat and his sunglasses on. You know, it's after like a hard day's work, and he's chilling out in like the break room, um, like drinking a cup of water or whatever, and he's yes. trying to just sort of like shoot the shit with the guys at work. But he can't help but do it in this way that is so Char esque. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's like the dialogue writing there. I do think is is particularly good. And then I also love when he go when so he's on the docks with Lala and the gambler like guy who owns her comes and like is trying to confront them. Mm-hmm. And Char has this moment of righteous indignation. In English, this line is "That's a fine boat you have. It must have cost you a pretty penny." And where did that money come from, Mister Genius Gambler? It's actually a very good translation. Catches a lot of Char's Charisms, but the Japanese is so good. He goes, "I fune mochida, yasui kaimono jarakata hazu. Sono kane wa doko kara tensai gamba no danna." It's so good. It's so good. That line. Yeah, that's one of the panels that in the manga version where the Yoshikazuyasuke uh, the manga has like very stylized lettering in some panels um, where yes. like the lettering is just like sort of consumes the entire panel and that line of like where did that money come from you like genius gambler gambler within like a sarcastic tone that's one of those panels where like those words are just huge and super stylized sprawled across the background of the panel. It's the way they always have his sentences end in these really interesting, like, uses of, like, Japanese, like, particles and verbs, you mm-hmm. know? Where it's like, you know, uh, you know, tensai gambara no danna. And, like, that, the way he, like, always, like, kind of, like, chews on those final syllables. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so good. I just had to, had to bring it up because I... Sometimes there's lines that Shuichi Keita has that I just have to rewind and watch again because they're that fun. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I also like the the final moment here. Again, I wish there was more after it, but I do think that final moment where they are in the um, mobile worker that Char, I think, like killed 20 people in in this scene. Um, yes. While he and Lala are having a casual conversation about new types, um, then he, he says to her, how about we go somewhere far away, Hoshi no Sekaida, which means the world of the stars. Uh, I think it's yeah. a great line. Yeah. Also there, I really, really love uh, Jaime Sauri's line delivery of where where uh, Lala Soon is saying like oh where are we going to go America Japan and in Japanese she doesn't say Nihon which is the Japanese word for Japan she says Japan yeah yes. there's something about her line read I want that like I need to just like clip out that one word and just like have it as like a ringtone or something it's just 
phonetically the way she says it is so pleasing she's just got such like a nice calm like very pleasing pleasing sounding voice and i don't know what it is about the way she says japan there but there's like this joy in the voice um she's very excited at the prospect of maybe going to japan and she loves it and like because she's naming places she's obviously never even been allowed to dream of going and now she's thinking about it and then char says you know world of the stars it's it's very good yeah Do you want to talk about um, sort of the middle episode with um, Dr. Minovsky getting crushed on the moon? Yes, poor, poor Dr. Minovsky. You know, <laughs> all he wanted to do was make his big, crazy robot suits, and then and and, and then they kill gotta, him. <laughs> yeah, and then he's got to die for it. It's a. I really like this middle stretch. I think it mm. is a. It's very fun. It's very. I think it's the best part of this this episode. Yes. It's very light on its feet. Um, I love the entire, just the spy craft of it is very good, especially, especially the entire side of it with Kaecilia as Catherine, mm-hmm. with her fucking assistant Bergmanson, who she shoots at the end of the episode, and just this whole mission. And then you've also got, I think, the side of it with, you know, Rambaral and the Black Tri-Stars marching across the whole moon is an idea I fucking love. You've mm-hmm. got Char just standing there doing Charisms on the moon now that he's in full Red Comet mode. Um, and then I think doing this like first little mobile suit skirmish and I think the entire dynamics of that are so well done and it's this is one of the best instances of oh this is an episode of MS Igloo done phenomenally well with like the CGI yes. fighting yeah that that's that's a good way to put it of this this does feel like it's like a great long lost episode of MS Igloo that's like would be if it was MS Igloo 1 it's like easily hands down would be the best episode but it's got like yes. that same style and sensibility to it of like there's like a finicky obsessiveness with like the interaction of the mobile suits and the way they feel their weight and this joy of being able to depict these like sort of weirder more archaic versions of mobile suits that also it feels like it is the thing that ms igloo most loved doing which is like let's just you know almost to its own detriment and to a certain degree of like let's just like really zoom in and like get really finicky and focused on these sort of weird other mobile suits so yeah i really love being able to see uh uh, is piloting a prototype zaku in mso4 and then the black tri-stars in char are in zaku ones the mso5 um, which we very rarely ever see, but I've always really loved the Zaku 1 design. Because, like, in the fiction, the Zaku 1 is basically this sort of, like, it's most of the way there um, in terms of its mobile suit design, but, like, the Zaku 2 is just that, like, little bit extra refined and easier to manufacture. So the Zaku 2 is the one that's actually fully mass-produced for the war, but you still have a couple of Zaku 1s hanging around. So, like, the, the guy in the original show who does like the refueling and all of that in episode three, I think it is. Um, that guy's like piloting a Zaku one. So you saw them a couple of times in the original show, um, but very rarely and mostly in the background of some scenes. And so it's cool to see like, yeah, let's give this cool Zaku one design, like, you know, the the spotlight of not when it's like this weird old relic, but it's like the newest, hottest fucking mobile suit that's absolutely wrecking these shitty versions of the gun cannon. Well, and I, this is, I think this section is so impeccably crafted. You could cut it out and it's just a great episode of something Gundam. Um, yeah. And I think part of that is I really, and I know, Sean, you're not as into some of the way they redo some of the, like, the mobile suit history as I am. But whether you love it or not, I love the way they foreground it here with, it starts with all the stuff with Tem Ray as our POV for the first couple minutes. 
um, with Admiral Gop, who is the sort of idiot admiral who you can tell every time he's in a scene with General Revel, Revel is like, I can't wait to be rid of this fucking guy. Um, but you have like them going to Anaheim and seeing all of this stuff, and Tem Ray over and over again is realizing they are so much further along with us. And then he has a scene where he goes to Anaheim and they're like, we don't need your fucking Gundam project. We've got these gun cannons. We're great. We've got everything. And he keeps seeing these suits and just re and he just knows in his bones, this isn't right. This isn't it. Um, and then you get the big action sequence where you see the gun cannons. It's still the Federation very much thinking in terms of like armored ground infantry and like stationary turrets and kind of old school things like that. And they get just absolutely fucking wrecked. And the animation is very good at showing the difference there isn't firepower, it's fucking mobility. And there's stuff like that that I think is just really well done in that kind of like MS Igloo finicky way. Yeah, because this is an area where I I'm I like what they do with the timeline here. Like the thing I didn't like is like the idea of like gun tanks existing like 20 years before the okay, Zaku yeah. does is like that's just like doesn't make sense to me but the gun cannon being this like and specifically this this isn't even the gun cannon gun cannon this is like a prototype version of the gun cannon um, that's even shittier than the actual gun cannon that like Kai uses <laughs> um but like the idea of this is the Federation sort of trying to get at the same idea of what the Zaku is but not like have one not having the technology and kind of just going down the wrong sort of route it's like you know it's like a bunch of countries developing like high-powered semi-automatic rifles after world war ii when the soviets make the ak-47 and everything then becomes assault rifles because that's actually the better design you don't need the like in one grand semi-automatic rifle kind of thing right there's lots of in like instances in historic like weapons technology that has that like there's this point of like division where like a new type of weapon is being developed and so there's this point where lots of people are experimenting with similar ideas but like most people go off and kind of are trying to replicate old things that used to work well um and then there's this one idea that then takes off that is like no this is actually the future of what this kind of warfare this kind of weapon is going to be and i think that the way that this is all visualized and explored in this sequence works really well especially because i think it fits the idea of the timeline much better because this is like less than a year before the war actually kicks off so it's i think it's like close enough um to like when these weapons are supposed to actually be deployed that it feels more natural to me of like the mobile suits being this like very rare experimental thing in the year leading up to the war where then once like you get to the actual war you've got a couple of deployments where like that fully cement that the mobile suits as like this is the defining thing that is going to shape how this war is fought like that logic for me works better than like the gun tank just having been around forever just because right and and that's pretty much when i say i like what the origin does in rethinking the origin of all of the mobile suits that this is more the stuff i mean the gun tank that's less of it for me it's more the like mm. years leading up to the conflict who's working on what i think that's very rich and cool and interesting and it results in this action sequence that is so dynamic because the Federation has so many more ships, they have so many more suits, they're dropping all this firepower, and you can just tell, and it's so well animated to show this, that these are fucking relics compared to what Ramba Ral and the Tristars and Shar are piloting because they just, it's an absolute fucking bloodbath. I love the way they show Shar go into town on the big freighters where, like, there's that scene where he blows up the command ship that all the mobile suits dropped off of. 
and you see and this is they do this throughout with all of his like red cometing in the battle of loom to come and stuff where he just goes around methodically targeting all the little spots on the ship that he knows are going to cause a wildcat destabilization to borrow yes. a term from halo and it just blows the fuck up and he stands there and watches it and he loves the fireworks and there's just stuff like that the tristars at a certain point aren't even using firepower they're just going after it with their fucking axes it's yes. really well done yeah, and it's it's an area where, you know, the anime, because it's animation, gets to, I think, like, really kind of, like, make a meal out of this sequence, which is cool in the manga also, but, like, this is where animation gets to have, like, the advantage of, like, we can really do a lot with this, especially when you have, like, the 3D stuff that allows them to more cheaply, like, do a huge amount of stuff with the sequence and have it look really good. And, yeah, one of the things I love is how much focus there is on the Zaku One's ability to engage in, like, actual classical melee combat and that being one of the deciding factors that they can just get up on you with a big-ass axe and just hack you to pieces um because like that's the degree of like mobility in the actual combat ranges you're talking about when you can't have super long range range weapons because of Minovsky particles and all that kind of stuff um like that is a really good visualization of the dynamic that makes the mobile suit the like weapon of the future in this world yeah absolutely it is it is so cool i love the dynamic that Ramba Rao is the only person on this crew who's actually thinking about the fucking mission which uh-huh. is that we don't like the like not killing minovsky is supposed to be obviously the very last resort and also ramba knows this guy and doesn't want him to die and of course the black tristars are just having fun char char's just there to, to test the limits you know and so ramba is just constantly being exasperated and it ends with with uh, i think it's gaia goes after one of the the last gun cannons kills it and then it falls and kills dr minovsky in a perfect sort of like dr frankenstein way killed by his yes. creation it's very good yeah yeah this is where there are like a, um some of the changes for this sequence from the manga come in of where like a really there are two kind of like notable differences between how they do this uh in the manga um one is that it's stated very specifically in the manga that like the reason why dr Minovsky is defecting is because he has finished whatever his design is for the zaku 2 and that's going to be the design that's going to be used for the war. And so the zombies are going to have him killed because they don't want to risk those plans getting out or him or him de- defecting. Um, and so that's why he knows that that's going to happen. And so that's why he's defecting early. And that logic isn't ever really delivered in the anime. And so some of like, so a lot of Rama Rao's sort of his role in that action scene isn't really present in the manga in the sense of like, they are literally there to kill him like that is actually their job it's mm-hmm. it's not to bring him back and then the other dynamic and i get why they would have changed this because they cut out some of the scenes that lead up to this and they've reordered stuff with when tim ray goes to side seven and all of that um but in the manga tim ray is the guy who designed the gun cannon he was the head of that project so like there's this additional dynamic of him like not only is it oh we are off on the wrong track it's that like i have failed to live up to what my mentor dr manoski is doing for the zeons and it's like that's part of why he has that like incredibly overly dramatic uh line when he sees the gun cannon in the like office or whatever um and he's like this isn't a mobile suit this isn't it um i feel like that line read i I don't think it ever stood out to me when i watched the anime before but it kind of doesn't make me that 
much sense when like you know what the actual reasoning behind that scene was in the manga which is like he's like i can't believe i made this colossal piece of shit what am i doing with my life exactly because correct me if i'm wrong but the timeline in the manga is they don't go to side seven until after this yes and that there's a lot more scenes with Tem Ray sprinkled in for what would have been previous episodes to build up to this. Yes, because they kind of Frankenstein together some like a lot of the Tim Ray stuff and reorder it to create a slightly different sequence in this episode. Because the thing that happens earlier in this episode where he sees the footage of the prototype Zaku's at Abawaku, that happens uh, sometime in, in the material covered in episode three. Um, and that's where he starts they start to develop the idea of let's build side seven let's like do like experimental development on this in one of the sides so that way like we can sort of like hide it um but that's before like the gundam project actually has started and that's kind of the genesis of the rx-76 project which is what makes the gun cannon that tim ray takes the lead on that all ultimately like ends in this like incredible disaster where they all lose to the Zaku ones. And then Tim Ray leverages that to say like, but if you, but we ha have these plans for the RX-78 Gundam, like the, this is the real deal. I didn't have the funding before. Like we're going to have the, we need to finish this lab on side seven so that we can have these facilities and build this. And he sort of like takes this defeat and spins it into him being able to work on this new project. And then that's when they move to side seven. Um, so, so a lot of that is reordered. So like in the manga, Amuro meets Fraubo like nine months or so before the war starts. Whereas like, it seems like he's been on side seven for a couple of years in the way that the anime depicts it. Exactly. And I, I don't mind any of that. I think the OVA largely makes the right calls because the way to improve this would have been to have a Temre insert in episode three. And I think that wouldn't have worked. Yeah. So overall it's fine. I do think the causality in the manga is better and clearer but that's always the kind of thing a manga is usually going to do better because you just have more space to play with. So, yeah. Yeah, it's something where the manga version is better, but also, like, the ways in which the manga version are better are really relevant to the manga because of, like, it's the much more yes. full version of the story. Whereas, like, it's, yeah, this is not a thing that, like, bothers me particularly here um, because, as you say, it's something that, like, those more finicky details aren't actually particularly significant to the more kind of pared-down focused version of the story that the OVAs are telling, which is much more focused on Char's experiences, um, whereas the the manga is much more sprawling at this point in the flashback, telling lots of stories about Tim Ray and Mirai over here and all that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. So I do just, before we move on from this whole episode, I just have to give another shout out to how good all the stuff with Kaecilia is. Yes. It's phenomenal. I love the scene where they are at the club and she is getting info on the dance floor from other soldiers. And the most delicious part of it all is at the end where she realizes that Bergman has been accidentally, he's not a traitor, but he's accidentally been leaking details. And she shoots him and says, the Kaecilia secret agency has no need for blabbermouths. And as he's dying, he says, Sumimasen, Mrs. Catherine. And then she looks at him and says, idiot, we can drop the charade now. That is one of the best Kaecilia yeah. moments ever. Mwah. Yeah, that, that whole side of the story is just <laughs> fucking amazing. I love the bit earlier where she kisses him on the cheek and he's like, can I erase this? Uh, because it's got he's got this like very bright red lipstick kiss mark because she had just put on lipstick. Um, her grinding on some random Xeon fucker at the uh, club is very funny. 
And yes, that that is like just a such an incredible moment of the guy who has throughout the, that whole subplot been constantly fucking up and calling her like Kaka, which means like your highness, basically. Um, and and she keeps on having to correct him. And then the one time he gets it right is as he's bleeding out on this couch. He's just like, "Mo ino yo sore wa." I was like, "It's like that's enough. Like we don't need that yeah. anymore." Uh, and he dies. <laughs> so good. Also, so she's threatening the mayor of Granada here, and he yeah. then dies in a crash. Did you catch the mayor's name? Because they show it in the newspaper. No, I didn't. Up. His name is Smokey Wilson. <laughs> He's mayor by day, jazz player by night. It's Smokey Wilson. <laughs> oh, Gundam names. All right. So, yeah, you do. There's a newspaper that comes up when he dies, and you can see it um, if you sort of read through it. And I just, I caught it totally by accident. I wasn't like freeze framing or anything. But yes. All right. Then we move over to our final little adventure with, uh, not really an adventure, it's just a couple of little scenes here at the end with Amuro on side seven, where he's very lonely and his dad is a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, we cut to side seven where the original Mobile Suit Gundam soundtrack lives, uh, which I love. Yep. I love every time they cut to side seven. It's basically all just original Mobile Suit Gundam. Like, it's reorchestrations of it, but it's the original tracks. Yes. Um, and that's really good. And yes, um, you've got Amuro living his best life in basically like a college student's dorm room. You know, <laughs> yes. with how messy it is. And he's just in his underwear all the time, and, which is, you know, lore accurate Amuro, as we see at the beginning of episode one of the original show, is that that is what Amuro's life is. Like, I just have always assumed that Amuro never wore pants until he left the house that day <laughs> in episode one to go with Frau Bo. That was the first time he actually put pants on. Before that, it was just underwear all the time, baby, 24-7. Yep. striped boxers well and there's there's a there's a scene here where tem comes home and you know and frau has this really nice moment where she like gently tries to like be like he's really lonely maybe you should be there for him more and then tem goes in and just berates him up and down for everything and it's just like you're the one who left the fucking kid here alone asshole not his yeah, fault yeah Amuro is like 14 years old at this point um and so he's a 14 year old boy basically living completely on his own um, yeah. who's also you know he's like a you know like kind of you know he's a special kid right like he's got he's got like very unique skills and talents that and that combined with his chaotic life home means he's very isolated at school um and he's very bored in his classes because he's obviously way more advanced than than the kinds of classes that he's taking um it's like it's a very kind of like vivid depiction of i, that I think is like very on the on the point or on the nose about like this is what Amuro's life would have been like before the his adventures over the course of the original series is this bored like kind of sleepy teenager just kind of sleepwalking his way through life mostly in his own little world tinkering on weird little projects in his room um and that's it that's you know it just kind of escaping from everything else around him yeah I think it's a really good set of scenes I agree with you I think it's just a very vivid portrait of you know, not necessarily anything we didn't know from the original anime, but just seeing a little more of it more fulsomely just makes it all the more kind of like sad and vivid to us. And then there is this, they sort of, to give Amuro a little bit more of a story in the flashback and then in this OVA, it's, it's him sort of starting to learn about his father's project, which in this episode means we have that scene where he wakes up in the middle, almost implied like some kind of like new type intuition because mm -hmm. it cuts from... Um, Tem Ray saying the word Gundam for the first time in the meeting to Amuro waking up, going into his dad's office, where we have the like 79 music playing as he's going in. It's so good. 
And then there's this big, really cool rotating camera shot through the office as he sees like the bank of computers and everything. And there's the Gundam plan on the wall. I think it's a good scene. What do you think overall about some of the the arcing they do here of having Amuro? It's not like he knows everything about the Gundam yeah. by the day of, but he's starting to learn about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sequence that makes sense with the origin makes like a slight adjustment where Amuro, um, at like in the beginning of the story, he is like looking up the Gundam data on his computer. So right. like it's kind of even though this sequence doesn't exist in the manga and it never shows him at this point in the manga knowing any of that it does fit with the version of events we see there whereas the original anime of course he doesn't know jack shit about the gundam until he like runs it smack head first into it and picks up the the plans for it on the ground right um yeah like i think it works i think for me i this is where i enjoyed this sequence a lot more when i watched the anime having never read the manga but having read the manga, this sequence just, like, is so much lesser, where this might actually be my favorite stretch of the manga in some ways, um, where the, this whole sequence is much longer, um, and they they have a, a sequence that they cut out here and put into episode 5, which I think is kind of weird. We'll talk about that in the episode 5 yeah. episode. But, like, this is, like, kind of half of a volume, more or less, is Amuro just at side seven going through his daily life as um the war is slowly like month by month like kicking into gear so this is like all like the basically the eve before the war which is where this uh sequence of the anime also culminates in but it's Amuro just kind of like sleepwalking his way through his life with a couple of notable things like events that stand out like him getting roped with Kai into um, going to where the research facility is which is the scene that they cut and put into episode five um but all of it is like interspersed with these occasional sequences of amuro at his computer tinkering on random shit with the radio in the background giving details of this is what's happening like the war like like tensions are escalating between zeon and federation and that happening like a few times kind of interspersed throughout this sequence culminating in the eve war is announced the outbreak happens frabo comes to his house like breaks down into tears and Amuro says like I, I'm scared too but there's nothing I can do I'm I'm completely powerless there's nothing I can do and that sequence in the manga I think is so compelling and rich as just a like big tone piece that captures that feeling of being young in the world that is on like this tipping point um and you just like you you try you want to run away from all this crazy shit that's happening around you because there's nothing you can do about it but it just dominant but you can't because it is what's shaping the world you know so it's like you know for us growing up in the iraq war period and stuff like that it had that same it captured that kind of quality to me of yeah just the news is constantly on you're constantly hearing about all this shit happening it feels stupid none of it makes sense but there's nothing you can do about it um there's this kind of like malaise to the whole thing that in the manga i think is like really powerful and the anime version captures a little bit of that, but it's it's so much lesser than the manga version of it that it makes me very frustrated because I would I feel like if they had just made it its own episode, it would be such a great standalone episode of the origin that's just like the Amuro episode, uh, which is more or less how that's sequenced in the mangas. It's just one big long and uninterrupted sequence. No, I agree with you one hundred percent. I still the scene at the end here. I still love, because it is such a good scene, that mm -hmm. even if it lacks all of the requisite buildup, it's still powerful. And I think it has the added benefit in the anime of Toru Furia being the one who performs it. Yeah. But 
Um, I do 100% agree. I wish episode four didn't... I, I wish they took the scene from the end of episode three, all the episode four stuff, the episode five stuff with Amuro, and did one Amuro episode ending as the manga does with this scene from episode four, because I think that would be one of the best episodes of not just the origin, but of all Gundam. Like, it would be a phenomenal little piece, right? Um, yeah, and without having to detract from other stuff because like the problem with it here in episode four is while like the scene with Fraubo and Amara at the end of the episode is good and it's like it's compelling because as you say like it's such a great scene as is conceptualized in the manga that even without all the build-up it still works really well but it also has absolutely nothing to do with anything that happened before it in this episode right, right? Char doesn't intersect with that story at all where at least Char you know he's not particularly prominent in the Manofsky thing stuff but he's still there interacting with the events whereas this is happening in a world totally outside the confines of Char totally outside the confines of Sela so our two main characters for the OVA project just are not involved in any way shape or form with any of this Onro stuff so it just feels like it ends up coming across in the anime version as kind of like fan service more than it feels like a legitimate part of the story that they're telling yeah I still think they they that one scene though I do think they nail. I think the the performance by both of the Frau Bo is a recast, but she's very good. Um, and then Amro's speech where he says, "I'm sorry, I was looking forward to your lasagna. I really was. I'll eat it. The truth is, I'm scared about the war too. But there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about anything. I'm sorry." And Toru Furia is incredible. It's a yeah. great piece of acting. I think it's really well animated. I I love Yasuhiko's slight redesign of Amro in the origin, like the way he draws. It's I wouldn't redesign might be too strong, but like the way he draws Amro, mm-hmm. just completely on his own, which then they translate into the anime. I think is a really really good version of that character, um, and it's just a very powerful scene. Again, it would be better if I think the choice to break up the Amro stuff and make it like a C plot in other episodes is a bad choice. And one of the few missteps the anime makes. Um, but man, you you can't ruin a scene like that if you're doing it that verbatim. It's still very mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah. And I also love the idea of Fraubo bringing Christmas lasagna over to Amro's house. <laughs> is Yes. It's, it is the most Christmassy of all foods, as we all know. Lasagna. Well, I do love just getting a little more of like seeing Frau. Frau is totally smitten with this fucking kid. Mm-hmm. And she is such a she is such a good person at heart, you know? I feel like she's smitten in part because she just has this like inherent desire to help people, you know? Yeah, um, she has this like motherly quality to her that is like, you know, is obviously there in the original story and I think is like accentuated even more in the manga um of, of like yeah. part of her like thing in on side seven is that she is like a like I, there's a lot of ways you could translate it but basically like like a guidance counselor kind of student like she's like an assistant to like the guidance system at the school more or less so like she goes and she sort of like you know scolds people like kai who is a delinquent and stuff like that and she is involved in that side of like trying to help kids she's involved with the like um like kindergarten and like preschool stuff which is where cats kika and let's are all at um on the colony and so she has this sort of like need to kind of like help people in this very like kind of mother hen kind of way that i think is very much true of her character in the original story that then is such a big part of her relationship with amuro and then eventually where she kind of has to grow out of it you know by the end of that story 
yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a really good read on her character, and 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 it how the way it plays into this scene is really strong. And I think this scene also part of what makes it register is, I think it has a very good understanding of that dynamic in that Amuro does care about her. Amuro does mm-hmm. like Frau Bo. He does value her as a person and a friend. He just he is not equipped to give her what she wants or needs. Like yes. it's just he can't get that far out of his own head. And I think when he does see it, he feels really bad about it. He mm-hmm. wishes he could. He's just not that person. And I think that's what makes it so achingly human, you know? Yeah, he wants to be a much better friend to Frau, though, than he's actually capable of being. And because he's a very astute kid, he understands that completely. But there's still nothing that he can do about it because, you know, that's that's the way humans are. That's the way that life is. is that even if you understand an emotional type problem it doesn't mean that you can solve it because it's an emotional type problem yeah the the theme song for this episode is the other side of space which is a hiroko moriguchi song it's fucking phenomenal but episode five has a an end song called i can't do anything that i assume is just inspired by this line Mm -hmm. from the from the manga um and it would be kind of cool if that had they had had that in time for this one but i still think this one you know give me a moriguchi song for the end of anything it'll be great Yes, because because you have you have a little scene that they add in that's a little anime original scene of like so you have like the war starts right and in the way that like is actually very faithful to how the manga depicts it and I find it very funny in the manga where it's like basically a manga version of the opening crawl of Star Wars is happening yep. <laughs> where it's just like big floating words in space um, yeah because it's like it's just a four panel page of the top panel is blank uh, sky then you get a little bit of the text coming up a little bit more of the text a little bit more of the text uh it's very funny um yes. but they do that and show the sequence of like the like first engagement is basically the evening of the one year war starting um and then the anime cuts to to uh when they're assaulting and taking over granada which is where casilia's base is char is involved in that attack um and you have a little moment with with lala and char there then cutting into uh, Soda no Kanatade or like Beyond the Sky, Beyond the Stars. Um, that is just a fucking killer song. I love this song yeah. so much. It, it's it been a while since I had listened to it. Um, and so like it kicking in there reminded me like, oh, right, this is where that song is from. Uh, because it's one of the songs on her, on Gundam Song Covers 1. It's the um, bonus track at the end. Yeah. And I've heard it many times because I've listened to that album so much that I also sometimes like, I know this song, particularly the opening string lick, I know very well. And I sometimes forget that it's from the origin. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just such a, you know, a classic rock ballad type song, very much in the same style of like Eternal Wind. Um, there's something of, because of, I, I, I watched this episode two or three days ago and I've been listening to this song a lot since I watched it because I'm very obsessed with like the verses because i think the verses of the song are so like really they're very simple but very well put together of that it's mostly just three elements a backing piano uh rhythm guitar that is uh distorted power chords um and then the vocals and the specific ways in which the the rhythm guitar is playing distorted power chords that are mostly palm mutes at a like syncopated rhythm so it's got this like kind of funky rhythm to it and then there's like a quieter piano section in the back that's a more traditional um, sort of standard rhythm playing underneath all of that that's much more gentle and is the kind of backing you'd get you'd expect more for what the vocals are doing. And it's just like there's just a precise way that the guitar 
um, fits in to give it this like edge with this slightly funky rhythm and this like slight distortion that's not super chunky. It's not very metal, but it's just like got enough of an edge that there's a good friction between those three elements. And it's such a simple piece of music that just like if you have a little bit of musical experience, you can very easily like break down exactly what every single element is doing just by listening to it a couple of times. But it's so satisfying. Um, I, I've just really, really, I had forgotten how good that song is um, until it was played there. And I was like, I, it kind of feels like it's one of those songs where like you get to rediscover it because you haven't listened to it in like a year. And then you hear it again. It's like, oh, right. Yes. No, this song fucking rules. It fucking rules. And it's, this is true of her other Gundam songs. It's that simpleness builds space mm -hmm. for her vocals to just soar and she yeah. is such an amazing singer her voice it, she's got one of those voices that just sounds like universal century gundam to me i don't know mm -hmm. how else to say it she is one of the best voices for this franchise um and i really do like that last little bit with char it's it's yeah. i like it's lala in her dorm looking up and she's saying i'm looking at the stars twinkle and char says stars don't twinkle in space Anyway, be a good girl and sit tight. I'll be home as soon as I'm done with work. And then the red comet streaks off. I love that little beat. And I feel like that's the kind of thing I wanted a little more of from yeah. the Charlala dynamic. Because that alone does more for me, I think, than the whole thing in South America. I agree. Yeah, 100%. Um, like, I was very... Because I had forgotten that that scene was at the end of this episode. And I was very pleased. It's like, yes, give me a little more... Just a little more of this kind of stuff between Char and Lala. Because it's very evocative and i do like char well actually lala there's like well actually stars don't tweak one space like yeah thanks char it's like fucking mansplaining to lala soon about the way that stars work but it's such a char line yes it's oh very my char God. line. anyway yeah i mean overall this is the messiest episode it's the weakest overall but there's still so much to like this is still a hell of a production if nothing else i mean yes no it's a it's like it's very entertaining like it's it, that's the thing about it it's like it's never not entertaining because it is very well put together it's super well animated the voice acting's great the music's great the animation is great the choreographing of the action sequences is really good it's more in like the details of how the story is constructed that it ends up being messy and that's why i think it's this is the part that if you've read the manga, I think this part diminishes in quality a lot in retrospect um, in the way that like doesn't happen to episodes one, two, or three because they're either very close and tight adaptations like episode one is or they're very smart adaptations that make very smart changes like episode two and three. Whereas episode four is like, we've got a couple of different elements that don't all fit together, but it's what we have to adapt um, and we have to kind of diminish or pare down a couple of elements in some of the stories like the one on the moon and sort of like simplify some of what's going on with Dr. Minovsky. Um So it's just like, it's slightly awkward in, in retrospect, um, but it is still very fun. Yeah. And episode five is a fucking banger. And I am excited to talk. I think the next one we're talking about, if you haven't watched it yet, it's just one of the best Gundam things. It's, it's incredible. Yes, because as again, this was the end of the original sort of like episode outline they had. Like, I think they had always had plans to like, if this does well, we will just make more of it. But the original sort of like production schedule, right? There's a year basically that passes between this and the subsequent episode. But they use that year very effectively. And we'll talk about all of that on the next episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. <laughs>